Well, let's pray. O God, your word is living and active, sharper than any double-edged sword, and it judges the thoughts and attitudes of the heart. Take your word, Lord, and speak truth through my lips, that all of us will be brought into the glorious freedom of the sons of God. For Jesus Christ's sake, amen. Well, it's good to be back. I think it's almost a year since I stood up here and preached to you, so here we go. Do you ever find yourself thinking, there but for the grace of God go I? A friend of mine has recently been caught speeding. Now, I'm not talking 100 miles an hour on the motorway, just 36 miles an hour in a 30-mile-an-hour speed limit. It could easily have been me. I almost always just drive that little bit too fast, though I must say teaching your own son to drive is a very good one for making you aware of your own shortcomings. Recommend it. Anyway, not long afterwards, my friend received a notice from the police with a choice. Either pay the fine and get the points on the licence, or pay to go on a speed awareness course run by the police. Now, both, it seems to me, represent a fair punishment for disobeying the law. But becoming more aware of the speed you drive seems a better way of preventing further fines as well as hopefully making you a safer driver. Now, my sermon this morning is all about awareness. I want us to become more aware of how we think and more aware that our thought patterns have consequences. And more aware especially that behind the struggles of our daily lives, there is a spiritual battle that we need to take seriously. But let's first remind ourselves of the background to the passage. I hope you've still got it open. It's page 1164. You will need it because we're going to look closely. Now, the original letter, of course, had no chapters. But our chapter 9 ends on an encouraging note. Paul has been anticipating that the Corinthian Christians will be generous. And then, verse 15, thanks God for his indescribable gift, by which he means, of course, the Lord Jesus Christ. And now, here he is again, appealing to them, verse 1, begging them, verse 2, to amend their ways, and in verse 6, saying he's ready to punish every act of disobedience on their part. So things have clearly gone wrong between Paul and these Christians. Things which need to be put right. And the focus of these last four chapters, chapter 10 through to 14, is that the time for putting them right is now, is now. For Paul is actually planning to visit them for a third time, as he says in verse 2, when I come. So let's look at those things that have been going wrong. And I'll call them, if you like, the surface problems, the surface problems. 
And then I think we're going to find more and more that there's something deeper going on, which turns out to be a battle for the spiritual well-being of God's people. Now just glance through, would you, and notice all the words here to do with conflict. We've got waging war. We've got weapons we fight with. We've got demolishing strongholds. We've got power. We've got taking captive. We've got punishing disobedience. And the key to all this is in verse 5. Paul writes, We take captive every thought to make it obedient to Christ. Now, the word for thought here is noema. I have no idea if that's how you pronounce it, but it can also be translated plot or scheme. And Paul has actually used this this word once earlier in the letter when he stressed the importance of forgiving people in order that Satan might not outwit us, for we are not unaware of his schemes. That's the word, noema, his schemes. You see, behind all the struggles and underneath all the struggles between believers, whether it's Paul and the Corinthians, or whether it's between us within this church, Satan is scheming. He's scheming. And that's why our passage returns again and again to the image of a battle. God's power is at work to bring his kingdom into our lives. But the devil is just as surely stirring up resistance to the authority of Christ. And these verses should make us, all of us, more aware of the territory that Satan loves to work in. So let's start looking at them. And we're going to start with disagreements between Christians. And I'm calling this friendly fire. Friendly fire. Verses 1 and 2. By the meekness and gentleness of Christ, I appeal to you. I, Paul, who am timid when face to face with you, but bold when away. Now, Paul is being sarcastic here. He's echoing the language that's used by his critics. Some, you see, have been accusing him of being bold, hard-hitting, if you like, when he writes his letters, i.e. when he is away. But when he's actually with them face-to-face, then he is timid. Now, this is a very pejorative term, and it implies that they despise Paul for being servile or even cringing. Now, probably, this refers to the Corinthians comparing Paul with these so-called super-apostles and finding him wanting. He doesn't seem as spiritual or as authoritative as they are. But whatever, the point is that they were judging Paul on the basis of their interpretation of his behavior and his character. They were labeling him. They were labeling him, thinking, end of verse 2, that we live by the standards of this world. 
Now, clearly, Paul is going to challenge this assumption when he comes, though he begs them that I may not have to be as bold as I expect to be. He doesn't want to have to give them a hard time. Rather, he appeals to them, verse 1, by the meekness and gentleness of Christ. Meekness, gentleness. These words speak of the character of Christ as one who is gracious, humble, courteous, kind towards others. Now, such a behavior may appear weak and timid and to be despised. Such behavior may not impress those who live by the standards of this world. But this is what Christ is like. And this is what we, his servants, should be like. Now, how might all of this apply to us. It seems to me that like these Christians, we too can misjudge others on the basis of how they appear to us. How we hear what they say. How we interpret what they do. Or even how they fail to behave as we would have expected in the circumstances. Now, I've noticed recently how incredibly easy it is for me to draw negative conclusions in my thinking about other people, especially when the lines of communication are less than ideal. And when we misjudge other believers, whether that's in marriages, families, friendships, home groups, the wider church. Look at the fallout. Each side can get miffed, rifts can grow, relationships break down, the body of Christ is wounded. This is what friendly fire does. And the devil has a field day. So let's not be unaware of his schemes Watch any tendency you have, as I have, to view others through a critical lens. And then remember, we are called to relate to them by the meekness and gentleness of Christ. For God wants to use all our relationships, perhaps especially those that are under strain as places where we learn to become more and more like Jesus. Now, in practice, what I think that means is we allow a margin of grace. I'm still really learning this one, believe me. Where we accept there will be factors I'm not aware of, And where I choose, I choose to put a loving interpretation on what I see and I hear. And where I never forget that I too am a sinner, saved only by the indescribable gift of Christ. 
So that, my friends, is friendly fire. Now, another way Satan loves to disable Christians is through secret strongholds. Secret strongholds. And we're looking at verses 3 to 5. And it's helpful to note that every time we have the the word world, the Greek actually has the word flesh. So it goes something like this. For though we live in the flesh, we do not wage war according to the flesh. The weapons we fight with are not fleshly weapons. On the contrary, they have divine power to demolish strongholds. We demolish arguments and every pretension that sets itself up against the knowledge of God. Now, as we've seen before in this letter, Paul sets up contrasts to make his meaning clear. First one, verse three. We live in the flesh. Sure, we need the use of our physical bodies. They're what we move around in. Even 90-year-old bodies. Hallelujah. But we don't do battle according to the flesh. Now here, the flesh represents all that is self-centered, all that's focused on me, all that relies on my own resources. And Paul is saying, it's not by all of that, not by throwing his weight around, that he intends to challenge them. Then another contrast, verse 4. Our weapons are not fleshly weapons. Paul means he's not interested in impressing them by who he is or by using cleverly turned arguments which might cut ice in the world. No. Paul has at his disposal weapons which have divine power, mighty weapons, God-empowered weapons, God-energized weapons. And do you know what their purpose is? It's to tear down strongholds. Now just shut your eyes for a moment and play around with that word stronghold in your mind. Just see what images come up for you. Stronghold. Stronghold. Some that came to me were high walls, deep foundations, no windows or light, reinforcements long established, and above all, designed to keep others out. But what are these strongholds? In the original Greek, verses 3 to 5 are all one sentence. So if you follow the flow of the argument, the strongholds get explained in verse 5. We demolish arguments. They're arguments, they're reasonings, they're my thinking through how things should be. And they're every pretension that sets itself up against the knowledge of God. A pretension, a high thing, a form of pride, a form of saying, I'm the boss here, I do what I like, the way I think is what counts. And who are these strongholds set up against? Again, the end of end verse 5, the knowledge of God, the knowledge of God. 
It seems to me that strongholds represent anything in our lives, often secret things built up over the years, even down the generations, that stand against God being God in our lives. So, of course, Satan would love to keep them hidden. But the power of God is available to bring them out in the open and to break their hold over us so that Christ will reign more fully in us and we, in turn, be free. Now, what these strongholds are in practice will not be exactly the same for you and you and you and me. They can be destructive habits. They can be thought patterns that have got us locked in, such as thinking it's okay to watch pornographic images on the internet because we're not actually doing anything, or to have a secret affair, or to hide our financial dealings. They too can be fears and obsessions around money, or sex, or relationships, or the future. I've become aware recently of ways of thinking that have been with me since childhood, thinking dominated by fears that make me avoid certain situations. And it's as I bring them one by one into the light of Christ, and I hand them over to him, then he breaks their power and I get set free. And it's a growing freedom, a growing freedom. And it's through God's word, sharper than a two-edged sword, that these kind of secret strongholds are revealed. So, of course, Satan is delighted that Christians no longer read the Bible and know the Bible as they once did. Now, in the spiritual battle, we neglect this weapon at our peril. So, friendly fire, secret strongholds, and finally, dealing with disobedience. Dealing with disobedience. In this spiritual warfare, Paul acknowledged that it is Christ who is Lord, commander-in-chief, if you like, and as such, Christ has the right to our total obedience, even down to my innermost thoughts. End of verse 5. We take captive every thought to make it obedient to Christ. There is a single-mindedness here about Paul. Every one of his thoughts, and he wants every one of the thoughts of all the Christians to whom he writes, including us, should be submitted to the authority and the lordship of Christ. So that, verse 6, our obedience is complete so that we are just as obedient as the wind and waves on Lake Galilee when Christ commanded them to be still, and they did what he said. So how do we recognize when we are thinking disobedient thoughts? 
Well, it's when they are colored by attitudes which are contrary to the character of Christ. Imagine Jesus coming in to those thoughts and asking him, what do you think about them? I'm going to give you one example. There is disobedience when we harbor unforgiveness in our minds towards someone. I know that's unchristlike because from the cross in the face of the worst injustice, Jesus cried out, Father, forgive them for they don't know what they're doing. You remember how Paul wrote earlier in the letter, back in chapter 2, what I have forgiven, I have forgiven in the sight of Christ in order that Satan might not outwit us. Holding on to grievances against other Christians and refusing to forgive them is one of Satan's favorite territories because it not only damages them, it damages us as well. Have you noticed that when you feel someone has wronged you, how you go over and over it in your mind, you replay it, you justify your position, you go on criticizing theirs, it's a very destructive and damaging downward spiral. And ultimately, the body of Christ is weakened. Now, I'm not pretending forgiveness is easy. I think it may be one of the hardest things God ever asks us to do. But I appeal to you, if you are aware of disobedience in this area, seek help to bring those things to Christ and to find in him grace to forgive. For his lordship will bring both freedom and healing to you too. So in conclusion, there is a battle on. Don't let's be naive and unaware of what Satan is about. But my friends, the victory has been won. The victory has already been won. Christ has disarmed the powers and authorities and triumphed over them by the cross. And now what he wants is to bring that victory into every part of our lives, especially, I believe, our thoughts. So I appeal to you, as I do to myself, stop the friendly fire. Let those secret strongholds come out into the open. Cooperate with Christ and bring every thought captive to him. For he is the most gracious, healing Lord, whose kingdom is life and joy and peace. Let's pray. I'm just going to ask that you be as open as you can. And if you want to make a gesture, you might like to open your hands up on your lap. Now, we don't go around digging for problems, but we just let the Spirit of God come and reveal to us where there is in our lives disobedience, thoughts that are not captive to Christ. 
just let him touch you and bring his light in. Now I just invite you, insofar as you are aware of those things, to hand them over to Jesus. Give them to him. Ask him to take them. Lord Jesus Christ, be Lord of all I am. I want truly to love you with all my heart, with all my mind, and with all my strength. I want to cooperate with you. I want to see your kingdom come. For Jesus' sake, amen.